Welcome back, NodPod. Thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode of Chasing Heroin. You guys are going to love today's episode. You are going to love today's guest. I interviewed Mary Beth O'Connor. She wrote the book From Junkie to Judge, One Woman's Triumph Over Trauma and Addiction. And for my Spotify and YouTube viewers, you can see the book. It says the junkie is caught up like meth, chopped up lines, and then the judge is pearls. And this is exactly what she was, junkie to judge. She was an IV using 17-year-old. And she is someone for whom drugs were really like necessary for survival from a young age. She grew up in a home with a lot of abuse and the cycle continued. She started using drugs. She did end up going to college. She was like incredibly bright, did really well in her SATs. (laughs) So you guys know me, of course, I told her, I was like, well, I did too. And that's like something I say all the time. And she ended up, her drug addiction got worse. Also, just so you guys know ahead of time, we do talk about childhood abuse and there's the description of a sexual assault. So be aware of that. Please, you know, take care while listening. She survives this and ends up going back to law school later after dropping out, finishes. She's a federal judge. And her story, her story just is is amazing, you know, like on its face, it's amazing. But the book is such a roadmap guide to recovery that's not necessarily 12 step. You can be in 12 step, like I got so much out of this, but if you're someone that's not wanting to do 12 step, she walks through, she started in 12 step and it wasn't really a right fit for her. So she found other groups, Women for Sobriety, what eventually became Smart Recovery. And we talk about those. She goes over those in the book. And it was helpful for me to read too, you know, at eight years as a 12-step person, because she talks really logically about like, you know, I agree that I'm powerless over using in moderation. Like, yes, that's true. And she also talks about a really important part of her journey, which was therapy and a therapist that specialized in addiction and abuse and recognizing that there were still behavioral patterns in her sobriety that were linked to trauma from when she was young. And the anxiety that she was experiencing was linked to these events. And then how do we manage that now and increase the quality of our lives? And the book is great. I highly recommend you guys reading it. You're gonna enjoy this conversation so much. And as always, NodPod, please let me know what you think and uh, we'll see you next week. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining me for another episode of Chasing Heroin. I am super excited to have today, we have Mary Beth O'Connor, who is a judge and wrote the fabulous book, From Junkie to Judge, which is pretty descriptive. I recently learned the term quitlet. Have you heard that term? I have. Okay. I don't love that term. Do you? It, it sort of minimizes it. Exactly. In, in yeah. That's what I thought, because it makes me think of chicklet. You know, like, you know, the books about the girl that moves to Paris and, you know, works for the mean designer. And I'm describing that I'm accidentally describing the plot of um, The Devil Wears Prada. But you know what I mean? Like a book like that, that's Quitlet. And so to call it Quitlet, I'm like, mm, let's stick with like recovery memoir. That's what this is. I don't love the Quitlet word, but regardless, <laughs> the recovery memoir book from Junkie to Judge, and it is amazing. How are you today? I'm hanging in there, doing well. Thank you. Good. Thank you so, so much for being here. I have so many notes from your book. I've got pages outlined and highlighted, and it's amazing. I'm so glad that I got to read it. I'm honored that you're on the show. And you open the book with, and I love this, your first shot of meth, the first time you use needles and you IV shoot meth, and you say, is this what happiness feels like? And for, I'm getting chills, for me- And you and I are very, 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 very similar. And stimulants, I felt the same way. The first time I did a line of cocaine, I was bartending. And I remember thinking, oh, I I can do this. If this is what life is for others, I could do this. I can't do the other thing, but I could do this if this is what it feels like. Same thing the first time I did a shot of meth. I was kicking heroin. I was withdrawal. I was dope sick. And somebody shot me up with meth. Didn't feel the dope sickness anymore, actually, and felt inspired. And that's exactly how I felt too. And I love that you start with that. And then we set up why you even got there. Because how old were you in that moment? Super young. The first time I shot meth, I was 17. You were 17 years old, right? And that's pretty young to shoot meth, right? For the first time. I don't know that there's an appropriate age to shoot meth, but you know. So why don't we start with how... How you got there? How did we get to, and I told Mary Beth, I almost called you your honor. 
Because <laughs> I've been to, I've been in front of many judges before. What should I call you? Just Mary Beth, right? Mary Beth is good, absolutely. <laughs> okay, I literally, your honor, started to just like come out accidentally. Mary Beth, I think you're like the example of why someone of someone who really needed drugs in the beginning to even survive, right? And so, if you don't mind, just walk us through your childhood and how you got to where you were shooting meth at 17 years old. Yeah, and, and I agree. I mean, I really thought about what I wanted the memoir to include, and I thought it was important to show the why. You know, why did I pick up alcohol at 12? Why was I shooting meth by 17? And so, you needed the backstory. And so, and then that's also why I had the subtitle of Recovery from Trauma and Addiction, because for me, those two things were very interrelated. And, and so, you know, I mean, things didn't actually start well from in the world womb is really is really the truth. My mother was an unmarried Irish Catholic woman in 1961. This was a big deal. And so for the first six months, I did not live with her. I lived at a nunnery. And look, I'm sure they fed me and, you know, to change my diapers. But I don't know about the bonding, the connection. And my mother didn't visit that much. But even when I lived with her, she wasn't focused on me. There wasn't any sort of sense of her being interested or connected. And she could be violent. But, you know, things got a lot worse when she married my stepfather when I was nine. And he was very violent with her. He was verbally, physically, emotionally, sexually violent with me. And it was just that household where you don't know what's going to happen. I mean, nothing might happen for a week or two, but you never know. And it's just that kind of constant stress and strain of living under a threat of violence, of all different types of violence, and not having any real control over what happened to you. So it was, um, it really set me up for uh, looking at substances as a, as an experience that was helping me survive that type of environment. Right. You talk about even learning to, it so paints a picture of you were learning to put away a dish just one at a time one at a time at a little girl, like, and that's just right now I can feel how that would feel right. To be like afraid to put away a dish and just like the anxiety that builds and you're young and it's getting baked into your psyche. You have a younger sister as well. And he, if you don't mind sharing about the incident, he almost molested you, but didn't, which is so odd. Do you mind sharing that? He got me out of my bed in the sort of the middle of the night, but that wasn't uncommon because he worked shift work. And sometimes my mother would be like out bowling. And so he would have me come into his room to be with my brother until my mother got home. So I didn't really think anything of it at first. And I was around 11 when this happened. And but when I got in the bed, he started, you know, telling me to kiss him and he was touching me. But then as his hand went up my, up to my underpants, I actually had my period and there. He felt the sanitary napkin. And then he like withdrew his hand like it was a hot potato and shoved me out of the bed. And after that, he never did touch me like that again, but he always, well, regularly was making sexual threats and he would back me in a corner and up against a wall and tell me he's going to teach me how to do oral sex and just a lot of threatening behavior. So I didn't know he wasn't going to go further again. I was always worried about it being something more physical. So that's sort of how it played out. It was that sexual threat, even though he never actually raped me in the end or even really touched me that directly after that. That's terrifying. And I know that, and I, I know you know this too, I'm sure because you did so much work with trauma, imagined events traumatize us equally right? And so the fear of that happening must have just been so, it just added to that anxiety. Like, you know, anything could happen to set off, you know, him, to set off your mother, you had your younger sister, which the bond between you guys, you know, we'll, we'll talk about that later too, but like the bond between you and your sister was so special. And the two of you, I feel, were like in the foxhole together, like, you know, like you survived a war together, you survived a shipwreck together. And it makes sense that a young age, somebody offered you Boone's Farm, right? Was that the first thing you drank? That's yes, the first thing Boone's I drank. Farm. <laughs> <laughs> and you mentioned two other things, that Mad Dog 2020, I drank that also. Yes, I remember. That's the first thing I got <laughs> drunk of. And Tom Petty Refugee is your favorite song. One of my yes. top five top favorite songs too. Like, hand to God. When I read that part, I was like, ah, me and this woman are the same. <laughs> We're so sisters, offers, bit. We're sisters. Right? Yes. <laughs> so somebody offers you Boone's Farm. You drink it. And 
that leads you to start seeking out pretty actively alcohol and then pot. So you hear about somebody smoking pot, a guy visits your house, a friend of your stepdad's, he's stoned, it looks wonderful to you. And so you start pursuing these things, right? Yeah, all the, I was sort of primed to look for it. I mean, after the first alcohol experience, it was like, oh my gosh, you know, this is a positive experience. I want more. And then I was sort of attuned to it. Any mention of anything related to any drug or any new drug, I would notice it. I would pick up on it. I would remember it. I would be looking for it. And that was true of weed. And then um, there were pills around. I did a lot of acid. But I mean, I had in my mind shooting up before I ever did it because I saw it in these hustler magazines that my stepfather had down in the basement. I remember the cartoons where the guy would use like a tie off his shirt and he's shooting up. And I mean that all of these things that someone else might have sort of, you know, flitted over. Not for me. It was hyper-focused. It was getting my attention. It was in my memory. I was waiting and looking for those opportunities to do that behavior. And the other thing that just to give you guys some context too, you're incredibly, incredibly, incredibly intelligent. So as all of this is happening, you've got this incredibly high IQ. You're doing really well in school when you go. And so the dichotomy between you being super, super intelligent, and I feel like this is something that a lot of addicts kind of struggle with or have happen. So you're super, super intelligent and you've got this like side life where you're actively seeking drugs and like hard drugs. And that's just so fascinating to me that you were, but you were actually able to navigate both. You end up getting into UCLA as this is happening. Well, I navigated for a while, right? And so, um, I mean, first of all, school, it was my one positive place. I mean, you know, it was the place where I got positive attention. The only place really where I got positive attention, where I felt like seen and noticed and appreciated and valued, you know, so school was really important to me. So I did everything I could to sort of maintain that, that relationship with school because I valued it. And, and I did do, I mean, I was able to manage school pretty well for a number of years, but by the time I started shooting meth, which was right before my senior year of high school, it became harder. It's just that by that time, I really had already, I had taken all the classes that college looked at, or almost all of them, right? I mean, senior year, they don't really see those grades or they don't see them after the first marking period. So by the time I started skipping a lot more school, and by the time I started having to go to teachers and ask to make up work and take the test late that I hadn't gone there for. By the time all that happened, I was already accepted into right. college. And right. so it didn't impact me at that time. And you got really, really high SAT scores, right? Yeah, I had really high SAT scores. And um, and I did get into UCLA. And then later I transferred to Berkeley and ended up graduating from Berkeley. So, uh, but, but, you know, the problem started later. Yeah. Do you remember what you got on your SATs? I know it was 95th percentile, which for my, I didn't go to like a upper middle class high school. I went to like a working class school. And in fact, when I was at UCLA and found that that most of the students had taken SAT prep classes, like prep for how to study for that. I was shocked. I never heard of this in my life, you know? So I remember that it was, I don't know the numbers, but I know it was 95th percentile in math and English. I'm curious because I did really well on my SATs and I got in early admission to a good college, same thing. And I would talk about my, my high SAT scores. And it kept me feeling different for a long time from other addicts. Like when I was shooting meth and when I was in those situations, I would think for a long time, you know, you're obviously like a drug addict, you've got a real problem and you might end up in a church basement somewhere doing that 12 step thing. But I got a 1400 on my SAT (laughs) and I'm different. Do you think that that the awareness of how intelligent you were, did that keep you feeling different? Did you know at some point that like, okay, I'm an addict, I'm dependent, I'm what they would call a drug addict, or was it just like a way to live? So definitely in the high school years, it was just a way to live. And then in college, I, I did better the first couple of years because I moved from New Jersey to California. So I had a geographic break, which did help me. And I, I mean, I mostly used alcohol, mostly on the weekends, some pills, some cocaine, but I kept it more boxed. I mean, I would do out of control things when I was using on the weekend, but it was more contained and I did well. Until I had this, you know, really bad multi-assailant rape in college and moved in with a violent boyfriend. And then in January, my senior year, I picked up meth again. And then it was another 10 years in that misery. So during those last 10 years, I certainly at least intermittently was aware, okay, you, you know, you are destroying your life with this. You are consuming poison 
and destroying your life. But then other times I think, well, it's not really me. It's all these other outside circumstances. Right. You know how it goes. It's like right. that back yeah. and forth. Yeah. Yeah. I lived in LA and I was trying to be an actress and, and you know, LA is expensive. And I was like, no, my life doesn't suck because of the drugs. My life sucks because I live in LA and I'm not in the union yet. I'm not in SAG. It's very hard to get SAG, you know, blah, blah, blah. One thing before we move to the college years, I love this line on page 96. You said, because your parents never really addressed, you know, you have track marks. You're clearly, clearly displaying signs of someone that's using and abusing drugs or alcohol. And you say, and they never address it. And you say, it is difficult to reconcile being beaten for spilling milk with silence about escalating alcohol use. It reminds me that they did not care about providing appropriate parenting or guiding me to become a productive and happy human. Instead, they lashed out to release their own emotions and justified it based on the most recent irritant. I love that line. And I feel like that probably encompasses most abuse when it's from an authority. It's just a way. It's not even about the trigger. It's just a way for them to release whatever is going on with them in this really unhealthy way. I mean, that's right. So when I, when we first moved in with my stepfather, at first I thought, okay, he just has different rules, you know, and I tried to figure out what the rules were and I tried to comply. Like he had weird things like we weren't allowed to be barefoot in the house. I grew up in New Jersey in the summer. You were always barefoot in the house. My mother, we, we had to call her. We couldn't call, refer to her as she or her. We always had the same mom. So it was like these weird rules. And at first I thought, okay, I just got to figure out what the rules are and then everything will be all right. But over time I realized, oh no, that's not right. No matter what the rules are, the rules change. You can do the same thing nine times and it's fine. And the 10th time it's the worst thing anybody in the world did. The, the rules come at you. So gradually I realized it wasn't about me or what I was doing. It was about him and where he was that day and who yelled at him or he woke up in a bad mood or hung over from beer or whatever. And that was an important realization to know that I developed techniques like putting the plate away one dish at a time, which I also taught my sister to reduce the odds of getting beat that day. But there was no way to eliminate it. There was just no way it was out of my control. And that was a, an evolutionary process to realize that that's the situation that I found myself in. And it's just it's amazing to me that you did so well in school with your environment being so unsafe because I can't believe you were able to go to school and learn because most kids, like you can't really expand emotionally or develop emotionally if your physical safety is always at risk and your physical safety was always at risk. And so it's just amazing to me that you were still able to like learn and adapt. And I'm sure that that constant, again, it's like that, that theme of like constant threat, like I'm not safe. I'm never safe. There's a constant threat. You know, that impending doom just all, you know, came together in that perfect storm. So you're shooting meth, you go to UCLA, and I personally have a question. Did you bring needles and meth with you, like on the plane? Did you bring anything with you or did you show up with no drugs? I brought like a gram of meth with me, but I was afraid to bring more because I wasn't sure, you know, what would get through. I mean, there was even then some security on the airplane. Yeah. I didn't bring meth. Yeah. So I had a gram of meth and no needles. So I knew I was hitting a crash soon. You know, yeah. I knew I was hitting a crash. Yeah. But you spend those years, you did actually slow down a bit. And then this incident happens. And do you mind sharing about that incident? You know, so it was my freshman year of college. It was actually the Friday before finals for winter quarter, I guess it would have been at the end of March. And I was waiting. I, I lived in Hollywood. I lived in a bad neighborhood because, you know, I'm a blue collar girl. I didn't have any money, but I was waiting for the bus and this van sort of stopped and the, there are two guys in there and they're joking around with me. And do I want to ride? Because I'm, I'm waiting for the bus to go to my friend's house. And I said, no. And they go around again and they come back and same thing. And the third time they came around, the bus was late. It wasn't coming. And so I got in the van. And what happened was as I'm sitting sort of, it was a van with those two bucket seats, you know, and I'm sitting in the middle and suddenly somebody comes from behind. I didn't know there was somebody in the back and really just sort of grabs me and throws me on the ground, sticks something in my back that they say is a gun. And then they're just, the van's picking up speed. And I'm like, okay, this is, okay, well, here's how I die. You know, like, here's how I die. And it's not going to be fun between now and when I die is sort of how I was looking at it. And so they had me for six hours. You know, they all raped me. I mean, although 
I was compliant, right? I mean, I knew I couldn't get away. I was compliant. I was watching their interactions. I was trying to figure out sort of who's in charge and what their personalities are and how should I approach them. And um, I didn't see any point in screaming in the back of a van, you know, racing down Sunset Boulevard. Nothing was going to happen for that. But they did stop to get gas. And that was a really emotionally agonizing moment for me because I'm looking at the door. Two of them are outside. One's with me trying to think, could I actually reach the door, open it? You know, those heavy van doors, they're hard to open, get out or yell and have somebody help me. And I, I debated it. And then finally I decided there was, I wasn't going to get out and it was just going to piss them off and it was going to make my death more painful. And so I didn't try. And that decision that weighed on me for a long, long time about that decision. But but eventually they did let me go. So, you know, it was excruciating experience and it really took me down another dark turn in my sort of my history and in my depression and my anxiety and sort of opened me up to picking up meth again. I can't believe they let you go. I mean, I knew because I heard your story on another, well, and obviously you're alive. So I guess that's how I would know if they let you go. But also I heard you tell the story and then I read the book, but I was thinking like, I feel like also back then there wasn't really the same. What year was this? It would have been in 81. Okay. So there wasn't really the same. I feel like people could like get away with that kind of stuff more back then. Do you know what I mean? Like there wasn't the same level of like investigation surrounding something like that. You as a woman, and you write this in the book, you were like, why am I going to call the cops? I got in voluntarily. Like it was just different. And like, they would have known that too. And I feel like people at that time, predators at that time, it was just almost like a free-for-all sometimes, you know, like. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, still, you know, way too many people, you know, the number of percentage of rapes that's reported aren't, aren't that high. I mean, first of all, a lot of rapes are are people that you know, right? That's and that's, true. that's uh, true. a level problem. But I also had had experiences with the police, with my stepfather. And I knew that they weren't really, I did not view them as attuned to my well-being or as, care, you know, caring about me. I mean, they only arrested him one time when he really almost killed my mother. And the other times it was just, ah, oh, go cool off or pish paw. So I didn't trust the police. I knew I had gotten in the van. I, I mean, I was bruised, but I wasn't really de- beaten. And I did drugs with them and I didn't get the license plate. And so, oh, and I had this, a promiscuity history. And I thought, well, you know, the best lawyers will research me and nobody's going to believe me. And so it was all of those things that made me decide what was the point of reporting it. But yeah, it's an unfortunate decision that too many of us make because we don't trust the system. Yeah. I do think the system better, but we're right. still not where we should. Right. Yeah. And what struck me too about that moment is that you described, like you said, you were watching them, you were observing them, you were calculating risks, you were making decisions in the moment. And you said later had the trauma from your childhood actually trained you in that moment to calculate the best odds. And I feel like it it probably did. I mean, looking back, have you, because you eventually came to that realization because you agonized with the choice, but you put it so beautifully in your book. You're like, I'll never know in hindsight, all the information I had in the moment, all the sensory cues. And in that moment, I just have to believe now that I made the right decision. And I agree with you that the trauma and the childhood abuse probably prepared you for that moment to survive. Yeah, it was like, I mean, I didn't sink into panic or hysteria, right? I was able to stay calm and I was able to sort of shove my emotions down and deal with the situation. And I do think that that was that trauma experience that helped me do that. It was also experience with trying to manage my stepfather to the best of my limited ability, but still some success. And all of those things did play into it. And I definitely, I mean, that decision in the gas station haunted me, honestly, for decades. And when I wrote the book, it was really another level of acceptance that I made the right decision. I mean, realistically, I was not going to get out of that van in that gas station. It wasn't going to happen. And I did have more information then, and I was paying attention and it was a conscious decision. It wasn't casual or me giving up. I thought about it for like what seemed like an agonizing eternity was probably like 90 seconds or three minutes, you know, but it's hard when you're, it's hard when you're faced with a situation where you have two poor choices and which poor choice are you going to take and how do you live with the choices that you make? And I do think that, you know, my choice to interact with them on a friendly basis and not sort of make them view me as an enemy or not to increase their stress. I think that probably increased my odds of survival. They would have 
killed me or not. Otherwise, I don't know. But I really, the main guy, I did really believe that my life was at risk from him in particular. And so, yeah. And I remember you, you identifying him as the ringleader and, you know, he was going to go last and you thought that's bad. If he's last, he's going to kill me. You know, you just were able to respond with each one of them differently. And you're right. Those van doors are heavy, especially back then from the side, you got to like, left, you know, like yes. all of that, you know, all of that makes sense. You know, thank you for sharing about that. So with all that, you take finals that Monday. And again, I, I think it's like, there has to have been a part of you that knew how to dissociate and compartmentalize that had just happened. You had been gang raped and then take finals, do well, <laughs> continue your college career and graduate. You graduate or you ended, you ended up transferring to Berkeley, right? For your last two years. Okay, right. Yeah. So you move with this very abusive partner. You move to Berkeley and, and graduate and get into law school. And then things continue to, and then I feel like, cause as I was reading your book, I was like, cause I'm still such an addict, right? I have eight years, but I was reading your book and I was like, oh, she was kind of managing, you know, like she was kind of, she was going to college. Like she's, why are we, she wrote the book. She could still use, you know what I mean? But then, uh, you know, it's like the progression of, I know you're on 12 step person, but they say in 12 step, the progression is, you know, the disease is progressive over time and it progresses into law school and then things kind of fall off a cliff from there, right? Yeah. I mean, I picked up meth again in January of my senior year of college. And that was really a combination of just not having strong skills anyway with managing emotions or situations. Then the rape and moving in with a violent boyfriend, I just sort of couldn't hang on. And I started using meth again regularly. So by the time I get to law school, and it was Berkeley Law, I mean, a top 10 law school. And by the yeah. time I get there in the fall, that's like six months after, nine months after I pick up meth again. So I'm in no shape for right. law school by the time I get there. And yeah. no shape at all. I mean, and so I ended up withdrawing because I knew I was never going to graduate and I was going to probably fail out. And so rather than fail out, I like filled out the right papers and I withdrew. That was also, it was a a horrible, agonizing loss. Every, I hated driving by that building, you know, by the law school because it was just... Uh, I would just clench in pain at the thought that and that my addiction and I knew that's what it was had caused me to basically give away being able to graduate from Berkeley Law it was it was it was a an ongoing pain throughout the rest of my addiction. And I think that that's something that's so universal for all addicts. Typically, we have something that we law for me same thing. So I wanted to go to law school, right? I went to GW in DC. And I wanted to go to law school. And in my earlier days, and I didn't even finish college. I didn't finish my four years. That's why when I was reading your book, I was like, oh, she was kind of killing it. I did. And <laughs> same thing. It was like, you know, my friends, I had a really good friend go to law school. And I was like watching her. And then she got married and she bought a house. And I was like, oh, my God, they're buying homes. She's like a homeowner. And I'm like this drug addict. And my husband had this amazing, he would have been a collegiate soccer player and lost it. And I feel like so many addicts, like that's such a universal experience is like losing a dream, losing something we're good at because we sacrificed it to our drug use. And we know inside and we can paint a picture about it on the outside, but we know inside what happens. And I think that that's such a key piece of recovery is getting to the point where we can accept the thing that we've lost. Right. And for you though, you were able to get it back, which is incredible and which occasionally happens, right? And there are two paths to that acceptance. For me, I'm totally fine with the fact that I didn't finish doing something like wouldn't change it if I could. But in some cases like yours, you actually get a redo. But I do also want to talk about, because this comes up later, you meet your friend Gina at this time. And I feel like she was a lifesaver for you in that moment because shared experience releases shame. I feel like, I feel like the path to relieve shame is to relieve the pain of somebody else by sharing, you know, and two of you were able to connect on abuse, on drug use. And she was so key for you in these years, you know? Yeah. I mean, I certainly had never, I bonded with her in a deeper way than any other friend really in my life. And it was part a lot because we had a similar history. I mean, she didn't have quite the physical abuse in her household, but she certainly had the neglect side of it. And she had the abusive boyfriend. She was sexually assaulted. She was an early drug user and was kept on going. And we meet at Berkeley and we're both still using, but we're, you know, are mostly functioning. But it was just, it was that emotional bond. It was just a feeling of, you know, 
I understand you, you understand me, you know, we are sisters in every way. And it was a a beautiful, important relationship in my life for a very long time. And she was a a lovely person, you know, and I still miss her to this day. Yeah. And I'm sure it would have been, it was nice to feel that you weren't alone, you know, like, because did you, when you were a teenager and when you were in college, did you think other people had experienced any of this stuff? Or did you feel like I'm the only, like, what was your awareness? Like, it must have felt like you were the only person that had this type of background. It must have been so isolating. Well, I certainly felt like, I mean, I had another multi-assailant rape, not just that one. Who gets, and I was kidnapped as a child. Who has three kidnappings? Like that's, you know, this is outrageous. Who, you know, and then my abusive stepfather, abusive boyfriend. It wasn't that I didn't know anyone who had some of these things. It was the combination that to me seemed like there's just something really sort of wrong with my life that I've got this long, long list of traumas, this long list of horrible things. But then, you know, I mean, on the other hand, I chose some of it, right? I mean, my abusive boyfriend, I knew he was abusive before I moved in with him and I did it anyway, you know? And so there was that sort of lack of really appreciation of or understanding of how to get out of it, of how to get well, of how to move forward. I just didn't really understand it. I was really stuck in it and it was dragging down. Yeah. So how did you meet Doc? Who And Doc is your current husband, right? Yes. Yes. This is probably the, this is like the coolest part of your story. Well, the, the whole thing. I mean, the fact that you survived these things, like you said, you know, and I want you guys to get the book and read it. So I'm not going to, we're not going to give it all away here, but like the two multi-assailant assaults, you know, you're like, who has to describe them twice? The Las Vegas incident and the UCLA incident. Like who has two of these, you know, so they're all these different things, but you meet this man. He's with you through horrible years of your addiction. He stays with you. You're still married to this day. And I love that you address in the book too. You guys really had to navigate once you were clean, your relationship changed because you changed. How did you meet him? I met him at the pub at Berkeley, the Bears Lair pub, which um, because he he had graduated like 10 years earlier than I did, but he was still affiliated with the radio station there. And so he would come up for radio station meetings and he had friends and they would meet in the Bears Lair. And so that Gina and I met him together. You know, we met we met him together. And so that's why I, I say we met the old fashioned way in a bar. You know, yes. so. <laughs> that's, that's kind of the old fashioned way. I always I think about that now because I'm, you know, I'm married and I'm like, hey, one of the main reasons why I don't ever want to get divorced is like, what am I going to I'm going to go on Tinder. I never had to do that. <laughs> I didn't have to do that. You know what I mean? And I, that, that's what all my friends do now. And I'm like, I don't, so, you know, to me, meeting in a bar is in fact still, you know, the old fashioned way. So you meet him, your drug use continues while you're with him. You're getting jobs that you're obviously, you know, overqualified for because you didn't finish law school. There's all these misdreams. Before we get to the recovery side of your story and you finally do go to rehab, obviously here, you know, here you sit as a federal judge. What was the last incident that, and I know it was a series of things, but like, what got you to making the decision? I need to go to treatment. I mean, it was really the culmination of 10 horrible years. So I pick up speed again in January of my senior year of college and I don't go to rehab until I'm 32. So, you know, it's a long friggin' haul. And during that time, as you say, I mean, I worked my way down the corporate ladder because I couldn't hold the job for long because I was using and But mostly by 32, my body was really showing signs. I was having physical problems. And Doc was really like done. Like he was ready to throw me out. And I was, I was so exhausted. I mean, so deeply, deeply exhausted and miserable. I just couldn't, I couldn't even move forward an inch anymore. And so for sort of as like a last ditch, I was like, well, you know, what if I go to rehab, you know? And so at 32, I finally did. Right. Okay. Yeah. Cause he walked into the living room and I did the crossword puzzle thing too. I actually, my last three days, it made me feel like I was still in there. My last three days of use, I was in a doghouse. My listeners know the story. I was in a doghouse, smoking meth, shooting heroin and doing a crossword puzzle, freezing in a doghouse in January, doing my crossword puzzle and picking my face in the dark, which you talk about too. I had a compact with a light on it, doing meth, picking oh. my face, doing a crossword puzzle so I could pick my face better in the dark. So he walks in, you've got your crossword puzzle, the ashtray's overflowing, you were supposed to have quit, clearly you didn't. And like you describe the meth hole so well, because you know he's about to wake up and you're like, oh, I got two hours. Okay, get up and go, get up and go. And then all of a sudden you're like, I've got one hour, get up and go, get up and, and you know there's like that meth hole when you're supposed to go somewhere and you're just like sitting there. You know what I mean? It's like, 
it's so hard to explain, but my, you know, many of my audience are, you know, in recovery from meth or still doing meth and understand like the meth hole, you know, it just traps you. It's so weird. Yeah. Yes. I, I mean, that's right. I mean, I couldn't, in my own best selfish interest, I couldn't act, you know, and, and it was a simple action. All I had to do was go lay down before he woke up and he wouldn't, not, you know, I wouldn't be able to hide it for another day, you know, right. but it was impossible. It was right. impossible. So, and, and he was really done because he, for him, it was like a casual thing. He was really shocked when he found out how bad I was, but he also, I mean, you talk about the relationship change, but part of it was he was, was overwhelmed. He was, he's a good man, but he wasn't really good to help me find treatment because he didn't really know what to do, you know? And so he was really stuck too. It's like we were in both in this stuck, miserable, you know, locked relationship. And it took a lot of work for us to be able to find our, our way forward into a healthy, positive relationship. Right. <laughs> so you find treatment. I want to point out here too, that you had to go through something that's so annoying. And when, and they still do this in some places, especially if it's affordable, you're expected to call every single day and see if there's a bed available. And I was homeless trying to do this with no phone. And so sometimes I have people that are like, well, resources are available and people don't want to. And I'm like, yeah, but resources aren't always easily accessible like that. And, you know, you were doing this in 1994 and it's still, you know, I've had to do that too, where they ask you to call over and over and over again. So fortunately you were housed and had a phone and the faculties somewhat you had to call every single day for three months, right? Before you got to bed. I had to call for 10 weeks every Monday from nine to noon. It was very specific to keep my name on the list, you know, and you're right. I mean, we still don't have readily accessible, affordable uh, treatment for everybody. It's still an ongoing, I mean, and I, and I was proud that I did it like, you know, cause yeah. that was like hard. It was an it's accomplishment and you're, and I was housed and I had access to a phone and it was still a challenge to remember to do it. Um, How? There was no like, cell phone bell to go off in 1994, you know, exactly. How did you pay for it? Did doc help you pay for treatment? At the time in California, you could actually get disability for being in treatment for substance use. It went away later, but you could. And since I had worked off and on and paid into, it was part of like, you know, the unemployment slash disability system. Okay. Um, so they actually, they actually subsidized me and it was a low cost program. It was, okay. you know, I didn't have insurance and I didn't have savings. So it was a low income, basically like a low income program. But I mean, today we, it's problematic. I, I don't know why we don't offer that, you know, to everyone to get some option to be able to pay for, but that's how I basically did it was I was able to collect disability while I was in treatment. They do do that again in California, by the way, if you have a substance, you can get disability. I don't, you said maybe it stopped for a little while. You can again right now. So that's good to know. Yeah. So you go to treatment and you were introduced to, and this is a lot about, you know, a lot about your recovery. This is where this journey starts for you and why I love your book so much. And I can't wait to recommend it to my audience because the second half of your book is really a roadmap to a secular non 12 step way to recover. And you get to treatment. They talk to you about NA, they're taking you to NA and it wasn't a fit for you. And so would you mind sharing about why it wasn't a fit for you? Yeah. So the problem wasn't that they were telling me one of the options is 12 steps. They told me, and unfortunately many programs still do this. It was the one and only option. This is all there is. There is no other way. And that was problematic because it wasn't a way that would work for me. And so, I mean, I'm, I don't believe in a higher power. I wasn't going to turn my will and my life over. I wasn't going to agree I was powerless. I really didn't like to focus on the defect side of things. So for a lot of reasons, it wasn't a good fit. But they were adamant that this is all there is. They swore this is there is no other option. So as a result, I had to think, of, I mean, I believed them because they were the experts. And so I really thought about what am I going to do? And so I decided to really just trying to find the parts of it that I thought would work for me and ignore everything else. And so, I mean, I read all the big book, all the NA text, all the rehab materials and classes, and I was just looking for the ideas that I thought would help me and sort of filtering them that way. You know, like, like the powerless idea, I, I didn't like that, but I thought about it and I decided, well, I, what I can agree is that I am powerless to moderate. <laughs> like there is yes. no moderating. You know? Right. Yeah. And powerless to use in moderation. Yeah. Is, is eventually the compromise you got to on that. And right. you know what? You say something in your book. So I'm a 12 step person, but you say something in your book that I hate this too. When someone says your higher power could be a doorknob. Uh, yeah. Right. Come on, man. I know. That's, 
It's not true. I'm going to turn my will and my life over to a doorknob. Like that yeah. isn't real. You know, no, that's it's not. not. <laughs> and people say it, I think, they, and I do agree conceptually that your higher power can be anything but outside of yourself, but the inanimate object thing, when people make that joke, <laughs> I'm like, okay, so like you heard that from someone who heard that from someone who heard that from someone and the impetus of this was a sarcastic joke probably, but it's become misconstrued as like a real actual, like, you know, helpful little piece of advice there that it could be a book a hard copy book. And it's, and I, so when you wrote that, I laughed out loud. Cause I was like, I don't know if I've ever heard anybody else say that out loud, that that's the stupidest fucking thing that they say in the rooms as they say, you know, and again, I'm a 12 step person, you know, I'm a higher power person, but that doorknob thing is dumb. <laughs> I mean, I support 12 steps when it's the right fit. The problem becomes when people go from this is what worked for me to this will work for everybody or even worse to this is the only way that works. And none of that is true. I mean, even at the time I found that as when I went home and as I say, it's 1994. So there's no internet. I went to the library <laughs> and looked for options and I found them even in 94. And there are so many options today. And also a lot of more people do the mix and match thing. You know, like I'm on the board for Life Ring Secular Recovery. We have members who do 12 steps and Life Ring. And Life Ring supports that. If that's going to give you a strong sobriety foundation, then we support it. So I, I just, I mean, I have no qualms about 12 steps being a good fit for many people. It is, but it's definitely not the only way. And it's not even a better way. So we need to focus on what will help the person standing before me. What's going to help her individually? What's the best approach? And I would love to talk about, because you did, you found all of these different options, some that I, that I didn't even know about. So in your year one, so you've got your NA year one and then your secular year one. And you talk about, and this is really cool. This is when you heard the Tom Petty refugee song too. And you wrote it and I was like, yes, I love that song too. I play it in my spin classes all the time. You found women for sobriety and which is still around, right? Yes. I speak yeah. at their conferences every year. Yeah. Okay. So they're still around women for sobriety. And they have a different take. And I've never heard this on why for women, they have a different basis of philosophy. Can you explain what that is and why? The founder of Women for Sobriety, and it is the first modern secular program. She felt that the 12-step way really focused too much on the ego-breaking idea. And she felt that women had already been so beaten down that what they needed was to be built up. And so the program focuses on self-empowerment, on the, like the power of positive affirmations, releasing the past, taking control of your life. In a WFS meeting, when you introduce yourself, you don't say, I'm Mary Beth and I'm an addict. You say, I'm Mary Beth and I'm a competent woman. That is the introduction. And it's just part of that. They want you to become a compassionate, capable, caring, and uh, competent woman. That's what they're focused on. And the meeting format is different than a 12-step format. There's no speaker in the same way. They, they have principles, 13 principles, and they'll talk about one, and then there'll be a discussion, and the women share. And so, yeah, that was the first option that I found, and it was a better fit for me than 12 steps. Right. And they still have meetings and stuff. I'll include their website in our show notes if you guys are interested. Yeah, and they then, do. And then you found rational recovery, which was the beginning of smart recovery now, which I've heard of, but I don't know that much about. But you said something that this is really what worked for me. They just simply make, or maybe this is a different one. They just simply make a sobriety priority. And there's the idea that if you just stay sober, you'll be okay. That is what I ended up finding out to be true for me. Like I've not done the program perfectly. But I did learn this time because I was in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out. Okay, if I just stay sober, then everything else will kind of work. Like I do like that, you know, that concept makes sense to me. So rational recovery, which became smart recovery, what is, what's that one about? Yeah, so rational recovery is around a little bit mostly smart evolved out of rational recovery and smarts focused on cognitive behavioral therapy techniques. And also they mix in, in the same meeting, they have not just people with substance use disorder, but also other behavioral disorders like gambling or overeating. It's all together. And they, their format does, is a little different. It doesn't have a share like a 12-step meeting, but they have a, sometimes a topic or there'll be a leader will present about a certain sort of idea around building a strong recovery, and then they'll have a conversation. Also a self-empowerment focus. Okay. And then yours that you kind of came to. Right. And like you said, it was sort of a mix and match. And I love this. This is in year two. You kind of started to, you know, put these things together. 
as you referenced earlier, like you can admit not necessarily the whole powerlessness, but I am certainly powerless to use in moderation. And that's like a step one for Mary Beth, you know, for me. And then, and I love this part. You took the, a time to recognize your core strengths that you still had, even as you were using, you know, that you still had some core strengths and you took the time to recognize those. And I love that. Yeah. You know, it's funny because when I got sober, I had really sort of lost that connection to the, you know, the Mary Beth who did well in school and all that. But I thought about it and I thought, you know, who was I initially? Like she's still in there somewhere, right? If I can reconnect to sort of my initial skills, my initial strengths, my initial personality, that will be um, to my advantage to sort of rebuild my connection to her. And so I did consciously decide to do that. And it was a really helpful technique in sobriety. It was sort of a reminder that there was a Mary Beth other than the person, the way I had been living for the last 10 years. There's another version of me inside there. I just need to bring her out again. I just need to strengthen her and put her in in the front seat, put her in charge, make her sort of the the dominant part of me. And in that pursuit, you decided to go back to law school again. How old were you when you went back? 39. I was 39. Yeah. I will emphasize, you know, for the, your, you know, the viewers that when I got sober, I mean, I had this horrible resume. I had a very good degree with good grades and a horrible resume. And so I didn't just like leap out into a professional, like high level job. My first job when I got home was part-time temporary low-level admin job because that's really all I was ready for. You know, I had to sort of like build up my skills and my, to go to work every day, that was like new behavior. I, I wasn't doing that when I was using, yeah. you know, and so I had to move forward. And so it was at, a, at six years of sobriety that I ended up going back to law school. And back, I mean, like I had to start over. It was from ground zero because I didn't really do it the first time. And it was 16 years ago, you know, so. Oh, so, you can, so none of the credits transferred 16 years oh. later. Okay. No. You know what? The, it's really cool to me that you went back at 39 because I remember, and I wish I hadn't listened to this actually now, like I said, I'm fine with it, but at like 26 or 27, I thought about going back. I would have had to have been a sophomore, but with the ultimate goal of going to law school. And my roommate at the time was in law school and she was like 24 and she was like, okay, so that means you're going to hit law school at like 30 or 31. That's a little late for a firm to pick you up later. You know, they are going to look at that. And I was like, okay. And again, now I'm honestly really glad because I love the path. I went into the fitness realm and now I do this and all that. So it's great. But like, you didn't listen to that if anybody said that to you. You went in at 39 and obviously you got a job at a firm when you graduated. Did anybody care about your age? No, I mean, there was some advantage to it. So like, I mean, I ended up at a big law firm when I, I graduated from Berkeley Law. I will say Berkeley did not take me back right away. So I ended up going to Hastings in San Francisco, but then I was number three out of 400 and then Berkeley Law took me back. And so it was definitely a process of getting, you know, back to where I had been. But I will say when I used to got sober at 32, because I was, you know, I have 29 years of sobriety, but I, I thought I was old at 32. I thought, oh God, I, I mean, I had wasted my education. I had really wasted every professional opportunity I ever had. I felt like, well, yeah, things can get better, but they can get like this much better. You know, I didn't understand that like, you know, at 32, there's still a heck of a lot of life left and anything, you know, can happen in those years. And so I had those same sort of feelings of that I'm old and that I'll never catch up. And, you know, and, and you just have to sort of work your way past it as you do. I think what we both did was we just looked at what's sort of the right next step. Right. And it's not like I didn't plan on being a judge when I got sober. I'm sure you didn't plan on being where you are when you got sober. It's always about What's my right next step? What's the right next opportunity? But also at, in sobriety, we get to know ourselves better. So then we get to make the choices that we really want, not like some we think we should have choices. But now that I'm five years sober and I'm however old, what do I want now? It may not be the same thing we wanted 10 years earlier or whatever, or what we thought we wanted on day one of sobriety, because you, you get to know yourself and you have new experiences and new ideas and you get to understand different interests and different skills and different aspects of your personality. So it's okay that we change our mind as we go through the process as to what we want. That's actually a really good point in sobriety because because I do feel like that's what happened with me is that I ended up being more right later anyways with once I was in recovery because like, you know, the girl that like really wanted to go to law school and all that stuff, 
actually wasn't really that happy and I feel much more connected me now, you know, like, and so I, you're right in sobriety, if, even if we change our minds, like, I don't feel like any of that stuff was a loss, right? I moved into what I actually wanted to do. I wouldn't go back and change it. And the college thing was really hard for me to let go of. I was really, really, really embarrassed that I didn't finish college until kind of recently until, you know, several years into my recovery. And then I was like, you know, and I truly have let it go. You know, I'm weird about, I've shared this on the episode before on the podcast before not owning a home is like my thing now that I'm like, oh, you know, at my age, I, I should be a homeowner. But again, you know, all the things kind of happen. And even if I'd stayed sober, it doesn't necessarily mean I don't own a home. I live in California. It's really expensive. You know what I mean? So it's like, that's what I do anyways, you know? And then you also ended up, you utilized therapy in your recovery too, eventually, because you really, really, really needed to address, because you still had what we started talking about with the show, all of that anxiety that had been baked in, right? With all of those experiences. And so even as you were progressing in life and law, you were dealing with things that, you know, so talk about your, your therapy journey, if you would. Yeah. I mean, so I, I started therapy pretty soon after I got home from rehab. I mean, they gave me a little rehab, but it wasn't much, but, um, and it, to my surprise, I was correctly diagnosed as having PTSD, which I didn't even know you could have if you weren't like a war vet or something. It showed up as severe anxiety and I would really get obsessive and I could really spin and spin and spin. And I, I was really a catastrophizer. I was always waiting for the worst case scenario to happen. And what it meant was that even when I was making good decisions and building a strong sobriety, I wasn't enjoying my life the way I deserved to enjoy it because I was so caught up in the anxiety. And it took me a lot longer and a lot more work to get my PTSD and anxiety under control than it did my substance use disorder. So I had to do individual therapy for years. I did meds for a couple years. And then I I went into a group of women with trauma histories, and that was like an eye opener for me and a whole new level of recovery. But even the, even now, I say I'm mostly recovered from that because it still pops up once in a while, but it's nowhere near as intense and it's much more rare. It is common for us in recovery to have some type of mental health issue or some trauma history that we, if we want to be our our happiest, you know, best, truest self, it's, we need to address that at some point. And it can often be a harder process than getting our substances under control. And so what was the support? It was a women's like a, a women's trauma group. What was that? How did you find that? So my individual therapist, once I had been in individual, I think maybe for three years, she thought I was ready, you know, to go into the group because okay. it was in a way more, um, it was other people's feelings, but also seeing the way it was seeing the way they were connecting their current behavior or reactions to their trauma. It, they okay. were connecting it back in ways that I hadn't yet realized okay. ways that I thought were just sort of like Mary best sort of natural. This is just, I'm just high strung. This is who I am. And then, and they're saying, well, no, this is a reaction to this. This is a anxiety reaction to that. And that was just another level of understanding for me that more of my behavior was still trauma based than I had realized. And it just helped me start addressing it sort of from that perspective and helping me make better, more strides forward. Once I understood that, it helped me make strides forward that I hadn't been able to make up to that point. Well, that's like how it would be the most helpful, right? How is that manifesting right now? Because I'm sure you're right. There are so many behavior patterns that I think is just me being me and being stressed out and not managing things. But like, that seems like that would be so, so helpful to link it back to something because awareness is so key, right? Once we have the awareness of something, yeah, that seems like a really, like the most helpful tool, right? In that management is how is this manifesting now? I know it happened. I know it was traumatic. What does that look like for me today? How do I live my life more successfully and enjoy the success I'm now making? Right. I mean, I was doing the right things, but I wasn't really able to absorb the happiness from it because I was, my husband called me the, what about tomorrow girl, you know, yeah. because it didn't matter how good things were today. I was always worried about, my biggest fear was that one little mistake on my part and everything I'd accomplished would blow up in my face. Like that's really was like my underlying fear. And it's even things like perfectionism, right? Perfectionism can be a trauma response. It's a trauma indicator. There's a lot of behaviors that we sort of take for granted in ourselves sometimes that are actually have a source that's in some pain that, we, that if we can see the connection, it can make it easier to break the connection and move forward. And you did have a, a breakthrough, right? So you're at this high powered law firm working, you know, 12 hour days, 
you know, advancing, advancing, advancing. And this is why I wanted to talk about your friend Gina that you met. Gina, who continued using, right, as you got sober. Oh, and this is another thing that you say, because your sister continued using, Gina continued using, and you describe it so perfectly. In your book, you say, all I can do is be an example of sobriety and remain a lifeline for them. And that is all we can do, you know, and that's such a beautiful way to put it. It's hard. It's hard. But like, that's such a beautiful way to put that, you know? It is hard. I mean, when I talk to friends and family, I always emphasize that everybody I know with a substance use disorder, we are friends and family too, right? I mean, we always have family members or friends who are so good and they don't recover on our timeline any more than we recovered on somebody else's timeline. And it's, it's hard to get to that place of acceptance because you're afraid, you're afraid they're not going to make it to the end. And, and Gina, you know, didn't make it to the end. And, but yes, we know both sides of that coin of having the substance use disorder, but also of experience the pain when our friends, Friends and family and our loved ones aren't able to move out of it. Right. So she she died and you were obviously so it sort of knocked you into a different level of life, right? You decided to let go of the constant hours and you moved into where you ended up becoming a judge, right? And so did it just sort of inspire you to slow down more, enjoy life more because she was gone and it felt like showed that it was fleeting? Like what was the catalyst there? It made me revisit, first of all, had I been there for her enough over the last few years, which, you know, I think when we have people die, we all second guess that in ourselves. And I had been working so much. I hadn't seen her that much. I I wasn't showing up for my husband as much as I wanted or my other friends and family because my hours were so crazy. And so it was really, is this how I want to live the rest of my life, being disconnected from my friends and family or not able to participate. Like we would have theater tickets and I could, I never could go. My husband sort of called my friend, his second wife, because she was always using my ticket. Um, And so it was a time of reflection. Is this the life I want? Is this how I want to be moving forward? Part of it was that because I had lost so many years, there was this sort of impetus to try to regain, you know, what I had lost. But at this point, it was really a time of thinking, okay, but that can't be my primary motivator for the rest of my life. You know, what do I really want? How do I want my life to be structured? How much do I want to be working? What kind of work? How much time do I want to have for the other important parts of life other than work? And I want to point out here too, you were arrested more than once and got to be a judge because you had your record expunged, right? Because that's the first thing I thought when I was like a judge, wait, she's been to jail. (laughs) But you were able to expunge your record. Yeah, I was arrested once when I was 18 and I was able to expunge my record. And I was only convicted. They, they reduced the charges. I was arrested for methamphetamines and they had me plead guilty to a disorderly person offense. It's not even a misdemeanor. Okay, I mean, it was a okay. real offense. And so, and they put in my sentencing order that I could get it expunged if I didn't okay. get arrested again for a couple of years. So yeah, so that was, that was part of it. But, and the other side of it was that by the time I became a lawyer, by the time I was like going up before the bar to get certified, I already had 10 years sober. They don't ask, did you use drugs 10 years ago? They asked, did you use drugs in the last five years? And so okay. I was like, well, way beyond the point that they cared about it, you know? So okay. it was, I was able to tell the truth and yet tell them nothing, you know? Um, okay. It's only after retirement that I've been able to, that I've really spoken openly about it. Um, oh. And part of it is because I know that m- most professional people, they hesitate because they're worried about ramifications at work, you know, valid fear. But, you know, I'm retired now and I can say anything and nothing, you know, yeah. there's no... Yeah. I can say anything. You can say whatever you want. So, uh, yeah. so would you have put this out while you were still a judge or no? I mean, I was working on the book when I was still a judge as like a side project. And I was debating whether I would put it out, you know, if, when I was still working. But I'm not going to decide that in, uh, until I'm done. Like, what's the point of deciding right. that? By the time I, I ended up um, retiring before the book was complete. And so it, it okay. didn't come up. I don't okay. know what I would have decided. I mean, yeah. it was... It, debate. It's not that I was worried. I mean, when I was appointed a judge, I had 20 years of sobriety. And by the time I stopped working as a judge, I had, you know, 26. So it's not like I was worried about somebody knowing that would appear before me, but it was just more that I knew that there would be flack, you know, from other people. And so it was, um, I I don't know what I would have done. I never cared. Somebody said, well, what if somebody appears before you and they know? It's like, yeah, I don't care. Yeah. At some point, the years add up and you don't. It was my primary fear in the beginning, though, for sure. My primary fear was anybody knowing. I went to this rehab and they had meetings on the beach. And I had taught fitness at like really high-end places. And I met this crap rehab on the beach. 
And they would sing happy birthday. If somebody had like a year or two, it was an NA bonfire meeting on the beach out loud, as loud as they could. And there was like people walking by and I would dive behind the other women. And I was like, people are going to, everybody's vaping and smoking and they're going to know that this is an enemy. And I was horrified. And now I have a podcast with my whole first last name on it. Where I'm like, yep, shot dope for a long time. You know, but in the beginning, it was definitely like my primary fear. The last thing I want to ask you about is your mother. So, because I think the way that you ended your relationship with her is actually probably pretty common. You know, oh, that's so funny. You still drink, you drink Pepsi. Was that a diet Pepsi? Okay. Yeah. Cause I remember you washing down speed with Pepsis. <laughs> that's funny. So obviously the relationship was, you know, full of turmoil and describe how, how, how that ended. And how, because you came to a piece, but without her changing. And I feel like that's common. Often they're not going to change, you know, and looking for the apology we're never going to get is a very common thing to try to do. And and you came to a relative peace with that. Yeah. I mean, when I got sober, you know, really when I started making some money, like as a lawyer, she wanted, she was trying to get things out of me. And, and so, but mostly she just wanted to keep having the chaotic relationship that we had. And so at first, what I realized was when she acts aggressively toward me, I am responding that same way. And, and the first step was realizing I don't want to behave like that, you know. So I had to learn how no matter what she did, I had to over time and it was a process begin to not react emotionally, to just stay calm and to really either tell her, you know, you need to stop or I'm going to hang up the phone or I'm going to leave or just not engaging with her. And that took a while to be able to do that, to treat her civilly, but not to let her suck me into the insanity. And then over time, you know, I got really sort of emotionally more distant from her. She, she, I remember one time I, I must have like 10 years sober and she called me a junkie whore or something. And I was like, you know, and I, and I realized that doesn't have any effect on me. So I had gotten to the point that her words were no longer able to hurt me. And then when she was dying, I did my, my daughterly duty. I mean, I went there when she was in hospice. I helped my brother who was, she had been living with and I was respectful, but I didn't have any kind of like final conversation. Neither one of us started it. And when she died, people kept telling me when she dies, you're going to feel it more than you think, but I didn't. And it's not that I was happy that she was dead. I mean, she died at 72. That's pretty young. I felt bad for her, but I had emotionally separated from her already. And so it wasn't like a grief that you would feel for a parent that you were still bonded to. So it was definitely that kind of a process. And you're right. I think a lot of us, if the parent's not going to change, we have to think about, well, then what does that mean for me? What does that mean for my behavior? What does that mean for our relationship? What does that mean as far as if I want to maintain some relationship, what's that going to look like? How do I need that to be defined? It's It happens for a lot of us. And what does that mean for my quality of life? Right. So I'm not upset all the time about this, you know, this parent that's never going to change. And I'm, you know, still experiencing these wounds over and over and over again, you know, and I lied. I have one more question. Do you know where Alan is or did you ever talk to him again? Do you think he knows about this book? Is he alive? Uh, I never talked to him again. He died a year ago. So he died after I had already I had already signed the deal for the book and it was coming out regardless. But his being dead does simplify things. I'm sure I would have heard from him. It was not dead, you know, but he is. So. Yeah. Easier. Okay. Okay. I kind of wish he'd, he'd known though, that you told everybody, <laughs> but you know, I guess it does make your life easier, but truth is protected <laughs> speech, right? Yeah. I wasn't worried about him ever winning money out of me or anything, okay. but I know he would have tried to stir up trouble, you know? And right, so right, right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time. Is there anything that like I didn't ask you or that you would want to share with our audience listening? I mean, the thing I'll say is, as you say that, you know, like 30% of the book is about recovery from the substance use and trauma. And there is like a guidelines and a checklist section in the end for people to sort of think through what their plan might look like. And so I try to make it, pers- I try to make, I thought about how can the book add value, you know, like how can it be useful? And so I really tried hard to make it useful as far as sort of showing that whole arc, but also really going into recovery. And I think that can be helpful for anyone who wants to do an individual type of recovery plan or a secular plan just to give them some techniques that might be useful. Although the general guidelines are good for anybody, even 12 step people. I mean, they're not secular specific, you know? No, absolutely. I'm yeah. I'm 12 step eight years. And I was reading the last part of the book is my favorite. You know what I mean? When you're going over all the different things and uh, it was super helpful, you know? 
Yeah. So there's so that's the only other thing. And then if anyone is struggling from trauma and substance use, the uh, one last thing is I'll put a shout out for She Recovers Foundation. I'm on the board for them. And for us, it's not just recovery from substance use, but it includes trauma recovery, mental health recovery, eating disorders or other behavioral disorders all in one place. So if someone's looking for peer support and women to support them, not just for substances, but for other things too, She Recovers Foundation can be a really good resource for that. Okay. And I'll include this in the show notes, but where would everybody find what's the website for She Recovers? I'm assuming they've got some social media. What are all, where would people go? SheRecovers.org. And yeah, they have Insta and Twitter and and they have a a large private Facebook group that is really active if people want to join that as well. Okay. And if people want to learn more about you and buy your book, where do they go? So my website's junketedjudge.com and there's a lot of information there and you can message me through that and I answer all messages and I'm on Twitter at MaryBetho underscore and the book is on Amazon and all the usual sites or your local bookstore. Well, thank you so much for your time. It was wonderful to talk to you. I enjoyed reading your book. I also really loved, did you design the cover? I did not, but I had input. I think they did okay. a really cool job. It's I so like it's it. so cool, guys. It's chopped up meth and then pearls. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. It's so cool. So well, thank you again so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I'll reach out if I have any questions or anything. Sure. Thanks for having me. I appreciate okay. it.